0: And so we come to the scene of the cross. This is the Passover weekend, a bank holiday. And it's the road out of Jerusalem heading to the north. The scene of execution would have been one of the tourist attractions of the weekend. There was no entry fee. First of all, the prisoners would have been paraded through the narrow streets, forced to carry the instrument of their torture and death. Jostled and jeered up from every side. I mean, the spectacle had already begun. A man carrying a cross was on a one-way journey. He was a dead man walking. Simon of Cyrene, we're told, verse 32, was in the wrong place at the wrong time. We don't know why he was there, but he certainly didn't volunteer to be part of that awful scene. He was forced, we're told, to help Jesus carry his cross, dragged unwillingly into the center of the action. And without knowing it, he was acting out what every follower of Jesus would be called to do. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow his Lord. And we only read about this man at this one particular moment in history. But what a moment to encounter Jesus. You can't believe it didn't have a powerful, lasting impact on his life. And as the three men reach the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, the horror and the insults intensify. There they would have been laid out on their crosses and the great nails hammered into their wrists and ankles, and then each cross pulled up with ropes and hoisted into the holes in the ground with a terrible thud. As Tim Keller comments, the creator of the heaven and earth lifted into the air, bearing in his body the marks that he will carry for eternity. But those around him can't see it at the time. So now the taunting begins in earnest. First of all, from the soldiers, offering Jesus bitter wine, dividing up his clothes there on the ground in front of him and and nailing the execution, uh, accusation above his head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews, enjoying the joke and then from the passers-by who were told hurled insults at him Matthew uses the imperfect tense which means they kept on doing it you know the insults just kept on and on mocking him for the sheer sport of it as they came out of the city if you are the son of God save yourself come down from the cross and the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders can't resist joining in too, enjoying every moment of that seeming triumph. He saved others, but he can't save himself. And for even the, from the two miserable robbers being crucified on either side of Jesus, they pick up the theme and heap insults on him, verse 44. It all seems so hopeless, so tragic, so final. And at this point, all you can see is, is the pain, the shame, the disdain of the cross. And Matthew paints a very dark picture, catalogue of rejection and humiliation. And the final devastating rejection comes as Jesus cries out in a loud voice, verse forty verse 6, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, Jesus spoke 21 recorded prayers in the Gospels. But in all but this one, he calls God by the intimate name of Father. At this, at this moment, the moment of greatest need, the bond of intimacy seems to be shattered in the cruelest way. The desolation of separation from his Father overwhelms him and he cries out in anguish. Naming an experience that was completely alien to him, and quite literally unimaginable for him. Forsaken. And it's amazing that he still has a voice at all at this stage of his suffering, but we read that it was with a loud voice that he cried out. Uh, The Greek word is megas, from which we get megaphone. I mean, can you even begin to imagine how weak he must have been on that cross? And yet in that loud voice, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is confusion. You know, some think he's calling on Elijah to rescue him. The more compassionate onlookers see his suffering and offer him some cheap wine to quench his thirst and anesthetize the pain. But Jesus isn't seeking rescue or comfort. As one commentator says, he's suffering, but he knows that was always his purpose and destiny. He doesn't drink wine for comfort, but chooses instead to drink the cup of suffering down to the last dregs in order to fulfill his mission. And with that suffering, all the emotional intimacy between himself and the father seems to be stripped away. And even as he calls out, my God, you know, that possessive pronoun, my, only seems to emphasize and accentuate the pain. You know, if he'd yelled out simply, oh God, it would be more understandable. But my God, my God, why are you, you who've loved me with absolute love, you who've never let me down, never left me alone. Why are you above all others deserting me, abandoning me at this moment? My God, my God, why? And as Ken Costa says in his book, Strange Kingdom, that single word, why, reverberates through every person in every age, through every nation, tribe, and family that has ever existed, through the experience of every person that has lived on this earth. At some point in all of our lives, we will find ourselves asking the question, why? Or more likely, shouting, screaming, or crying, why? You know, we might feel so totally abandoned, or rejected, or lost, that all we can do is cry, why? But in that cry from Jesus... From the very depths of his suffering and violence on the cross, the deepest grief ever known, he carried our why with him to show us that we're not alone. He understands, he's been there, and he assures us that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And with his final cry, verse 50, where another gospel writer, John, fills in the blank, we're told that Jesus lifted up his head in triumph and raised the victory cry. Again from Psalm 22, he has done it. It is finished. And with that final cry, we know that he had been forsaken so that we could be forgiven it had been accomplished. Jesus had carried the punishment that we deserve. He'd carried God's judgment for our sin. He died in our place. It could be rightly said of Jesus that the goal of his life was his death. The whole purpose of him coming to earth was to die. Did you know that his name, the name Jesus, means God saves? And you may remember the angel's words to Joseph, his father, when hearing, you know, the shocking news that Mary, his fiancée, was expecting a child. The angel says to him, "She will give a birth. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." It was all foretold. God had a purpose and a plan to send a saviour, a rescuer. And this was the moment when it all came into being. The most momentous event in the history of our world. And who was there to witness it? A motley group of people. But it's Mary Magdalene who stands out from the crowd. Her devotion, do you remember, shown earlier with that extravagant gift of perfume poured out over Jesus... And now, her continued, resilient love. After all that Jesus had done for her, she just wouldn't leave him. She was there, at the cross, as he was buried, and then again on Easter morning. She stays watching from a distance, we're told, verse 55, with the other women as Jesus dies on the cross. Just experience the, experiencing the whole ugly spectacle. And there she is again, verse 61, sitting and watching as he's laid in the tomb and the great stone is rolled across the entrance. She can't leave him. And at first light on the third day, there she is again with the other Mary. Just look at verse, the first verse of chapter 28, wanting just to look at the tomb. She has to be near him. She just waits and watches. There is a silent witness. In fact, among all of Jesus' followers, she is unique as being named at the three key events, Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. Only Mary Magdalene, a former prostitute, is identified as the one who is there to witness the most important moment in the history of the world and it's only now really that she emerges as a key figure because she was most probably there during the 3 years of Jesus ministry but it's only now in the 3 days of his passion that she steps out onto front of stage and when everyone else had left only she refuses to leave Jesus the first to greet Jesus as he emerges from the tomb she doesn't leave his side She doesn't doubt his love and his lordship, and she's rewarded. She was the first to greet him in his risen body. So let's come back to our original question, Pilate's question. What shall we do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? What shall we do with him? Will we resolve to trust him through all the thick the ups and downs of life, the thick and the thin, the things that we don't understand, the things that hurt us, that cause us pain, that cause us grief. Will we refuse at those times to leave his side? Will we dare to keep on believing his love and forgiveness, to believe in his lordship? What shall I do with Jesus? The only question that counts in all of our lives.